time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Christ. And my job is to dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment that will help equip God's sheep to fight back and protect themselves against the wolves that are taking over the church here in America and abroad. Today is a special program because, uh, well, I'm not in the studio. And, uh, in fact, I'm traveling. As you're listening to this, I'm on an airplane heading to Chicago. And I've got a couple of conferences that I'm going to be attending there in Chicago over the next week. Uh, One of which is the Reveal Now conference over at Willow Creek there in uh, South Barrington, Illinois. Hopefully we'll be giving uh, you updates from there and uh, find out what it is that uh, the seeker-sensitive movement 2.0 looks like now that they realize that they're not actually producing any disciples. Uh, We'll go from there. Uh, This episode, this edition of Fighting for the Faith, therefore, is not really me giving sermon reviews and reading listener email. Uh, I'll give you a break from the bad sermon. Some of you people have contacted me and said, oh man, those horrible sermons are so difficult to get through. Well, you got a break. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a break. Today you get to listen to uh, two Sunday school lessons that I taught on the bondage of the will. This is the que- this answers the question, uh, do we choose God or does God choose us? Is there such a thing as free will? Now, already I know that some of you, just in me bringing this up, are saying, oh, Chris, you know, we have free will. Uh, what I would ask you to do in that case is uh, listen to the lessons, listen to the biblical case, and, a- and really check for yourself if whether or not the Bible teaches that we have free will. I claim that it doesn't, and I'm not a Calvinist, by the way. I'm a Lutheran. There's a difference. So these Sunday school lessons were taught at Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, really not that long ago. And uh, so, you know, you understand the the contour of how the show is going to work. There's actually two different lessons back to back. So if it sounds like, wait a second, you get halfway through and it sounds like, you know, we're just starting over again. Well, that's because there was two lessons. I put them back to back so that you can get the full teaching on this because it took me a couple of weeks to go through it. And if you disagree with me, Save your disagreements until after you've heard the biblical case, and then email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. But if you're going to disagree, I'm not interested in your opinions. I want to know uh, why you disagree biblically. I want to know why you disagree biblically. Anyway, without any further ado, we'll get into today's uh, edition of Fighting for the Faith, and I uh, hope to hear from you all real soon as I'm traveling to Chicago. And uh, I'll sign off now. So God bless and enjoy the Sunday school lessons. Okay, this morning we have a, uh, a, a pretty powerful lesson planned. For those of you who have been lifelong Lutherans, this will be a review lesson for you. However, okay, uh, even if it's a review, I strongly recommend you take notes and familiarize yourself with these passages And the reason why is because today's lesson is going to focus a lot on the bondage of the will of humanity. You know, can we choose God or not? And and this is super relevant, although I hate using that word, uh, in our dialogues with our evangelical friends for this very reason, that uh, the majority of our friends who are evangelicals are semi-Pelagian in their view, and you're going to learn what that that $5 word means, and we're going to talk about what Scripture says about it. And all of this is going to be done in the context of studying the book of Colossians, which we'll get into proper today. Um, I like to uh, go through my presuppositions because we all approach 
Scripture with presuppositions. I'm getting mine out on the table so that you know them, and it's good for review. First of all, sola scriptura. The Bible is the inerrant Word of God and the supreme authority and truth and doctrine regarding the true worship of God. Now, this does not mean that other religious writings do not contain some truth in them. You know, we can actually say where the Bahad'vah Gita is in agreement with Scripture. Shazam, the Bahad'vah Gita is actually right. It's all that other stuff that's wrong. Okay, and that's kind of the problem with deception. Is deception usually doesn't come to you with the exact opposite of what you believe. It comes to you with enough of the truth that it's like the bait on the hook that's hiding the deception. So something to keep in mind. Okay, so Scripture alone is our authority, and anything that contradicts the Word of God, including your reason, that has to come into submission to, uh, to the Word. Solus Christus, we are saved by Christ's work alone. Sola gratia, we are saved by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. And interactiva, again, I've made up that word. Um, This class is interactive. You can ask questions. Today we're going to start into the book of Colossians, and we're going to start looking at the opening verses. And what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be reading a section from the book of Colossians, and then we're going to start digging into some of the verses. And funny enough, we're going to read a few verses today, and then we're going to go back to verse 1. And today we're going to spend probably all of our time focusing on one key section of verse 1. And um, it's crazy to do that, but I, I think it's important to kind of dig in deep into some of the topics that are raised in the book of Colossians. By way of review, remember the background of the book of, uh, of the epistle to the Colossians? Authorship, it is written by the Apostle Paul. Date, roughly about 60 A.D., and we know that it was written at the same time as the, as the letter to the Ephesians and Philemon. Okay, just by way of a little bit of background. Okay, the occasion for the letter, just so you know, Paul did not establish the church in Colossae. It was Epaphras who did that. So Paul had never been there. And so the occasion for the, the letter is a heretical attack, an attack against the church in Colossae, And um, Paul is writing apostolically, which we'll delve into today, to uh, combat the heresy that is threatening the church there. Now, we don't know exactly what the heresy is. We think it is an early proto-Gnostic heresy. And the nature of the heresy we we learn from the text itself. We'll talk about these again as we get into it. Ceremonialism. By the way, Lutherans are not into ceremonialism. We have wonderful ceremonies that we practice, and we do it under the guise of ideophora. That means we have the freedom to do these things, but they're not prescribed by Scripture, so you're not in sin if you do not do it the way we do it, although the way we do it's really good. Asceticism. This is a harsh treatment of the body that's designed to whip you into spiritual shape and make you worthy. Okay? Think of monks here when you think of ascetics. Angel worship. We have lots of that going around today, don't we? You know, I saw a great bumper sticker that said, don't drive faster than your, uh, your angel can fly. Good advice. I have not clocked my angel personally. Don't know how to do that. So I'm hoping that he can at least, at least do 120 because from time to time that may be necessary. Okay. Um, deprecation of Christ. Okay, that's the thing about heresies. All of them always undervalue Christ's role and overvalue our role. It's like the the absolute standard of heresy. Okay, and secret knowledge. Yeah, you think you heard the whole truth about Christianity? 
I got news for you. There's more to it than what you've been told. Come on over here. I'll tell you the rest of the story. And then a reliance on human wisdom. Boy, we've got a lot of that going along today, too. So in our study of the epistle to the Colossians, this will actually be relevant for you today, although I hate that word. All right. Heresy, just by way of a little bit more review, is the Satan's weapon of choice. Almost from day one of the church, one of Satan's favorite weapons against the gospel has been heresy and false religious teaching. Just seems to be a chronic pattern with him, and he hasn't really broken it. The goal of heresy is to uh, distort the gospel, uh, get people to trust in anything other than the true Christ or the true gospel message. Uh, Usually heresy causes people to trust in themselves, their good works, moral improvements, or spirituality for salvation. How do you know you're a Christian? I'm a good person. How do you know you're a Christian? Well, I'm, I decided to follow Jesus. How do you know you're a Christian? I, I, made, I made a decision to receive Christ as my Savior. Notice anything common in all of those things? I did, I did, I did. Okay, subtle. Pay attention to uh, pronouns. Christ saved me. He redeemed me. He gave me faith. He sanctifies me. It's a different story altogether. So, with that in mind, let me see if I got this. Uh, We're going to start looking at the opening sections of the epistle itself. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you, Kairos Kairarene, from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the people, uh, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. It also does. It also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Good opening. This follows, uh, by the way, uh, epistles all kind of follow a similar pattern. You know how like when we write a letter, you know, you put the date, you put the address, who it's, you know, who, who it's going to, where they live, dear so-and-so. Okay. Well, back in those days, they didn't have flat pieces of paper like we have now. They had scrolls. And so if you wanted to know what was on the inside of it, it was always important to have a really good, clean opening. And so they all followed a similar pattern. So what would happen is if you're not sure what was in the scroll, you open it up. You go, oh, grace and peace to you. Okay, this is a letter. And close it up. You know, so the, about the only epistle that doesn't really follow this pattern is the book, is the epistle to the Galatians. This one, that one just gets right down to business. What are you doing leaving Christ? Another, someone preaches another gospel, let, you know, let him be eternally condemned. Paul doesn't mince words, and he's not really concerned about cleaning up the beginning of the portion, and he's not really concerned about the form of that particular letter. Here we see a very standard epistle opening. And right off the bat, Paul says that he's an apostle of Christ by the will of God. Believe it or not, you can actually preach probably an entire sermon just on this little concept. Well, since I don't preach sermons, I thought I'd do a Sunday school lesson instead. So, um, we're going to really focus in on that. Hang on a second here while I wait for my 
magical PowerPoint machine to do its thing. Okay. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Three things just uh, come right out in this first verse. Paul is speaking from an apostolic office. We don't have apostles today. Okay, this is an office that died with the apostle John. And just by way of something you need to keep in mind, whenever you're conversing with somebody who tries to downplay the importance of Scripture, one of the things they'll try to do is downplay the apostles. Well, Jesus only works with people who are poor or people who are nobodies. Look, you know, the, the apostles were all fishermen. Well, actually, they weren't all fishermen. We, that, we know this from Scripture. There was a tax collector amongst them. And they say things like, and God doesn't bring the seminary graduates to the front of the class. They go to the back of the bus. Uh, that's not true either. Uh, Paul was very well educated, and Christ made him an apostle. And it's important to note that Christ called the disciples, and the disciples became the apostles. And they acted with apostolic authority, which they received from Christ himself. And so Paul, right off the bat, is reminding the Colossian church that he is writing from his apostolic office. This is important. This is an apostolic letter, which means it's scripture. Yes. Yes. Um, if you want to get down to the, just the rough definition, what is an apostle? Rough definition is one who is sent. Okay? But when we're talking about the, an apostolic office, we're talking about specifically those who were sent by Christ, and one of the qualifications was that they have to have been an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I am not an eyewitness, and I don't know anybody who's that old. Okay? So... I, you know, I don't have the, pa the passages in front of me, but it pretty much lays it out in Scripture that unless you're an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you are not really an apostle. And even Paul says that he's an apostle who's abnormally born. And funny enough, he is an eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ because Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And we'll actually talk about that. So he actually meets the qualifications, but he says that he's one that's abnormally born. Uh, no. Having a vision would not qualify. That's correct. Because that could have been induced by LSD. <laughs> it, it, it was not a vision. It was truly, truly him face to face with Christ. From Scripture. Right. And it, yeah, right. Happens. He... he Here's what happens. He has a run-in with Christ on the road to Damascus. Okay? Christ converts him. We'll get into that. He then begins teaching, has to leave, and he then says that he learned his gospel not from other men, but he learned it from Christ Jesus himself. And to prove this claim, he actually went to Jerusalem and laid out his gospel to Peter and James and the other apostles. And they said, Yep, that's the gospel. You've got it. You got it right. And so they put his, they put their stamp, apostolic stamp of authority, on the Apostle Paul and recognized his call as an apostle because what his gospel preached was exactly what they were preaching and he got it from Christ himself. Okay? Does that make sense? So when we talk about Scripture, one of the important things to remember is, is that we know what, what Scripture is from the apostolic writings. 
We, you know, one of the reasons why we reject the, agno- uh, the Gnostic writings is because there's no proof that they were apostolic, written by the apostles. So we reject them. Okay? And the early church was obsessed with apostolic writings, finding what they were, protecting them and guarding them and teaching them and preaching them. Okay? They were dedicated to the, to the apostles' preaching. So Paul here, writing this epistle, starts off by saying that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. And he says, by the will of God. And we're going to actually come back to this one a little little bit here. And Timothy, our brother. One of the things I think that I haven't heard in a long time is this idea that we Christians are brothers and sisters. This This was a concept that is played up heavily in the apostolic writings and in the writings of the New Testament. And here Paul is saying that Timothy is writing with him. Timothy is not an apostle. He's a pastor. But he's a brother. He's our brother. And so there's this brotherhood, brother, you know, brother-sister concept that's going on here in Scripture. And sadly, I think we've lost a little bit of that. You know? So if you start calling me Brother Rosebro, that'd be all right. <laughs> not professor. I am your brother. And brothers and sisters don't have any authority over each other. Okay, we're all kind of on the same playing field. Okay, Paul, though, is speaking from an apostolic. Just a little something I wanted to point out. Now, where we're going to spend most of our time today is in the words, by the will of God. Okay? There's a few ways that you can skin this cat, but I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a bigger approach rather than a narrower one. We could talk about how he's an apostle by the will of God in the narrow sense that God called him to be an apostle. But what I want to do is step back a little bit and use this as a, as a discussion point of talking about the bondage of the will as it pertains to sin and how all of us who are called into Christ are done so by the will of God, not our own will. Okay, That's where I really want to spend... Our time, because Paul's conversion story is as over the top as it was. Technically, still is our conversion stories as well. Okay, and we'll talk about that. So we talk about the will of God. Waiting for my computer to catch up. We're going to talk a little bit about the bondage of the will. Great book by uh, uh, Doctor Luther. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. It's a. It's not one that you do. You know, in a, in a night, it, it actually the, you'll get to some section of the bondage of the will, where uh, if you're reading it, you might get a page or two in, and have to stop and really chew on it because it's densely packed. But in talking about the bondage of the will, let us review what the Augsburg Confession says about original sin. Believe it or not, original sin and the bondage of the will, we're talking about the same things. Augsburg Confession says this, It is taught among us that since the fall of Adam, all human beings who are born in the natural way, it says the natural way because that kind of excludes Christ, born in the natural way and are conceived and born in sin. This means that from birth they are full of evil lust and inclination and cannot by nature possess true fear of God and true faith in God. From birth. From birth, that means that those little babies... I remember one time talking with a pastor, and we were having a discussion, and he said to me, you know, Chris, 
what is the, what is the perfect picture of innocence? And I'm thinking, Christ? He's all, no, 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 no. Stop over-spiritualizing things. Haven't you ever held a newborn baby? I said, yeah, I had three of them. Well, actually, my wife did. But yes, I've held three new, new, newborn babies. When they're first born, isn't that the perfect picture of innocence? To which I said, are you out of your mind? <laughs> they come out screaming. Okay? But still, that's not enough proof. Scripture tells us that our children... The day they come out, the second they're born, as soon as they draw their first breath, actually from the time they're conceived, they're conceived in sin. We're not looking at little saints or little angels there in the birthing room. We're looking at the birth of a sinner, from a sinner. Okay? And in Scripture, our Scripture teaches us They cannot by nature possess true fear of God and true faith in God. Moreover, this innate disease and original sin is truly sin and condemns to God's eternal wrath all who are not in turn born anew through baptism in the Holy Spirit. So, in studying original sin, there's some important things we have to keep in mind. One is a hereditary guilt. And this is inherited from Adam. Okay? Every single one of us, from the time we are conceived have Adam's sin imputed to us as if we had done it. And you say, that's not fair. I didn't commit that sin. Why is it counted against me? Let me point something else out. Christ's righteousness is given to us as if we had performed it. That's not fair either. If you don't like Adam's sin being imputed to you, then you probably won't like Jesus' righteousness being imputed to you either. And basically, think of it this way. We all have congresspeople that we vote for, state legislatures, senators, and whatever, although the ones I voted for don't seem to ever make it. But we vote for them nonetheless, and they go to their respective capitals, and they represent us. Adam represented us in the fall. And here's the deal. The reason why God imputes His sin to you as if you had committed it is because if you were there, you would have done the same thing. You can't say, if I was in the garden, I wouldn't have taken the fruit. Hog wash. Okay? You would have done it too. Yeah. No, we can't. We cannot extricate ourselves from Adam's sin. We are completely mired in it. Okay? Completely unable to save ourselves mired in the sin. So we inherit Adam's guilt, but furthermore, we inherit Adam's corruption. All are conceived and are born sinners and all die. I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but that's okay. Here's the idea. Not one of us is a sinner because we've sinned. We're all sinners. We all sin because we're sinners. Only Adam and Eve became sinners because they sinned. Does that make sense? All of us inherit that. And we are by nature sinners. Adam and Eve, you understand, God created them and they were good. And they sinned and became sinners. And all of us, the entire human race, to use the old uh, King James expression, were in the loins of Adam. Okay? We were there. And so Adam and Eve became corrupted 
and became sinners and we inherit their guilt and that corruption. Okay? So, like I said, Adam and Eve became sinners by committing a sin. All of their descendants are sinners. I should have said that properly. Because they are sinners by nature. They sin because they are sinners by nature. Okay? In other words, snakes slither, cows moo, sinners sin. That's what we do. Yeah. Adam and Eve had free will, by the way. We don't. Adam and Eve had free will. They could have chosen to do right or chosen to do wrong. Okay? They're the only ones on the planet. When we talk about free will when it comes to God, in spiritual things, Adam and Eve are it. They are the only ones who had it. We don't. Make yourself a Baptist for a minute. Uh, I have some, I have some uh, experience in dealing with Baptists. Okay, and Baptist ministers in particular. Okay, Baptist minister has a problem with this whole idea. Their confessions of faith will say that there is original sin and it truly does condemn us. And then they've got this thorny issue because they don't believe that baptism saves. Okay, They don't believe the scriptures that our baptism washes away sins and so they don't apply it to their infants. So then the question is, is that, well, okay, if, my, if we have an infant who hasn't been, you know, they haven't been baptized, they're sinful because Scripture says that Adam's sin is imputed to them. What happens to them if they die before they make a decision for Jesus? Because now there's the kit. Because you want your kid to make a decision for Jesus. Okay? Bad theology. So what they do then at this point is they come up with a grace period. And each kid has a, it's like, has a different shelf life on this grace period. They call it the age of accountability. For some kids, God's not going to hold them accountable for their sins until they're 11. For other kids, it might be 6. Okay? It's different from kid to kid. Well, this is a nice little story. The problem is, is there isn't a single passage in Scripture that teaches such a thing. And what they'll do then at this point, they'll say, well, listen, the Jews, they have this, you know, this, this, this coming-of-age ceremony that they do for you know, their kids, you know, their 12, 13-year-old boys. And so, therefore, the Jews have kind of this idea of this age of accountability. So, it has to be from Scripture somewhere because they're holy people. You see what I'm saying? You're right. Okay. Circumcised in the eighth day. Yeah, well. Yeah, brought into, Adam, into Abraham's covenant against their will. So the age of accountability is not in Scripture, and it's a capitulation to try to explain what happens to infants who die before they can make a decision for Christ. Okay, now, if you remember one of our key points here in the Augsburg is that you can't make a decision for Jesus. And I'm going to bring up some passages. It's important that we do this. We're talking about the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Okay, talking about God's will when it comes to salvation. Uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 19, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Psalm 51, 5, uh, Romans 8, 7. Actually, we're going to look at a couple of uh, verses around that as well. And I'm going to dive right into these passages. Okay? Romans chapter 5 says this. Nothing. It says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through one man's trespass, talking about Adam here, much more have the, gra- have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment followed one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more with those who receive the abundance of grace in the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Okay? So, one judgment uh, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, and it brought us to all of us. Adam sinned, we are all condemned along with him. Okay? Let me continue. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, you were made a sinner in Adam, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Talking about Christ. So if you don't like Adam's sin being imputed to you, then you probably are not going to like Jesus' righteousness being given to you by gift. It's imputed to you as if you had done it. That's the good news. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, first three verses. And you were dead in, the trespass, in trespasses and sin. Dead. Doesn't say mortally wounded, barely breathing. This idea that a lot of evangelical ha- evangelicals have is that if they go and preach the gospel, they just want to get that person to take a step. Okay? Just make one step towards God and God's going to do the rest. That's the idea. Make a decision for Jesus. That's what they want you to do. The problem is, is that they think that they're preaching in a hospital. You know, they're going through the wards, finding people who are sick in their sins and telling that person, just make a decision for Jesus. Get out of that bed and walk and he'll come and heal you. Okay? Wrong analogy. The right analogy is, is that we're going to preach in a cemetery. Okay? Now, you don't tell somebody in the cemetery, just come on, make a move. Make a move and God will help you. Okay? Just make the first move. Okay? You have to preach proclamationally to dead people. Okay? Like in the Valley of the Dry Bones. Hear the word of the Lord. Okay? We are dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is the bad news portion of the gospel, if you want to say. Okay, got bad news. We are by nature children of wrath. We're dead. And as Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. He was a liar and deceiver from the beginning. When he lies, he speaks his native language. These are not kind words if you're trying to boost someone's self-esteem. Okay? And again, remember, the mortal sin of Americanism right now is if you hurt somebody else's feelings. He said something mean to me. He says I was a sinner. Okay, sorry. Don't shoot the messenger. Okay, so the question is, from a practical point of view, can you kind of skate over the whole sin, dead, and all that kind of stuff, and then let pastor clean it up later, just get him to church? The decision part.
Okay. So, okay. So, what's the point in bringing up a decision to a non-believer, or getting stuck on it, getting stuck on the issue? Well, first of all, I think we need to we need to make sure we understand it and sort it out biblically first. Okay. Now, the question is, in practice, well, how does this play out? Okay. If I'm sharing the gospel with a non-believer, okay, I'm not going to sit there and, and discuss it in the finer points of the doctrine of original sin. Instead, I'm going to proclaim the gospel after I've given them the law. Okay, why? The whole, we know this. Okay, that our our theologians write. Peeper basically says something to this effect. The idea is that conversion, true conversion, doesn't happen until two things happen properly. One, the preaching of God's law to condemn sins to terrify the conscience of the, of the unrepentant and lead them to repentance. And that is not your work, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that when I ascend into heaven, I will send the Comforter, and when he, uh, the, I will send the Spirit. And when He comes, He will convict the world of sin and unbelief. So understand something. When you're preaching the law and that person is feeling convicted of their sins and they're terrified and they're, and they're, they're feeling sorry for what they did, that's not because you're such a great order. Okay, or because you you know you really was able to come up with a method to really make them feel it. Instead, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts. Okay, and then law properly done, followed by the gospel proclamation. But in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Christ died for sinners. And then I, for just because I'm lazy and maybe even don't like the manipulation, when I when I talk to somebody who's a non-believer, I just leave them with what the apostles said: repent and believe the gospel. Don't make a de- I, I don't tell them make a decision for Jesus and then here's the Lord's you know here's the sinner's prayer. It's repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sins and believe the gospel. Believe the good news. And I leave it to the Holy Spirit to work out the rest. Uh, we want to think that we're that we're in the driver's seat. Okay, that we're making these decisions. Ultimately, if that person comes to church, receives Christ and the forgiveness of sins, and they've been truly converted to the Christian faith then it's the job of the pastor in the church that they're in to instruct them in sound doctrine and what the, what the Christian faith teaches. And in so doing, at, through their discipleship, they will learn, oh, it wasn't me who made the decision. It was Christ who decided for me. Just like we heard this morning from the pulpit. Okay? I love that picture of repentance. You know, you know, you got the lamb you know, on Jesus' shoulder, and the lamb's going, dude, I repented. You know, he's being carried the whole way. All right? It's a great picture. Now, Psalm 51, 5. David says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David here is not saying that his mom was a loose woman. Okay? He is saying something about the human nature. Okay? Adam's sin was imputed to him. Hereditary guilt, hereditary corruption... And it shows forth in his conception. In sin did my mother conceive me. Okay? This is our condition. Okay? Romans chapter 8. This is important stuff here. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Listen to this carefully. For the mind that is set on the flesh, that's what we are by nature, is hostile to God, 
It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, I've got news for you. We can make all kinds of decisions. Today, I made a decision to wear Levi's, a t-shirt I probably shouldn't have worn that doesn't exactly go with this jacket. Okay? I chose this morning to get into my car at 9 o'clock in the morning and drive to church. God did not make these decisions for me. Okay? A long time ago, when I was a lot thinner and handsomer, I said, I want this woman to be my wife. Okay? We can make decisions in all kinds of things. Who we marry, where we want to live, what we want to do for a living, how we want to do our hair. We cannot choose to love God, though. Because by nature we are sinful. You cannot choose God. God has to choose you. And this is an unpopular teaching. And I don't care how unpopular it is, Show me from Scripture it's not true if you disagree with it. Okay? For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. That all of us, by nature, from the time we're conceived, fall into the category of those who are hostile to God and incapable of submitting to God's law. Okay? So, either when you heard the gospel and Christ gave you faith, or when you were baptized and you received faith then in the waters of baptism, until that time you were numbered with those who could not choose God. Does that make sense? Okay. So you're not here because you have decided to follow Jesus. Okay. You're here because Jesus went and rescued you. Let me, let me give an analogy that will make sense here. Now, I'm not trying to diss Mother Teresa. There was a Time Magazine article written about her. She had a supreme... Okay, she had a supreme crisis of faith. Okay? And the reason why is because she was in a religion that teaches works righteousness. Now, I don't know whether or not she trusted in Christ for her salvation or if she was trusting in her works. But for the sake of this little exercise, let's pretend that Mother Teresa really believed that she was being saved by all the good things that she was doing. Just for a second. Now, we got Mother Teresa who's doing all these incredible good works. And Juanita, the lady who cleans the kitchen down at Avila's, who trusts in Christ, and she is a working mother, and she mops up floors. I've got news for you. For the person who is trying to earn their salvation, not one of those good works will be seen as good. It's impossible to please God without faith. Yet, the washwoman down at Avila's, who cleans up the kitchen at night, cleaning up the kitchen and mopping up the floor, that's a good work that God is pleased with because He's pleased with it through Christ. It doesn't have to be a spiritual good work, and that's one of the things where people get so far off. You want to know what a good work is? Go back to your catechism. We start with the Ten Commandments. Love God. Honor your father and mother. Do not lie. Do not cheat. Do not steal. Be faithful to your wife. Do not bear false witness. Those are good works. Do not covet. The tyranny of works righteousness is this, is that now God's favor towards you is based upon your good works. If you are suffering, 
and something bad has happened to you, it's because you're not reading your Bible enough. It's because you're not being spiritual enough. It's because you're not doing enough good works. You better get on that wheel and start running so that God doesn't strike you down. You see the tyranny of it? How do you know then if you've done enough good works? I recently wrote an article about a pastor in South Carolina who basically says the problem with Christianity is that there's a bunch of Christians out there who are going to church, and when they go home, they sin. Okay, no, I'm I'm not overstating this argument. They, They go home and they sin. So they go and they sit in the pews every morning, or in the auditoriums now, and they hear all this information and they don't put it into practice. They go home and they surf the internet and they look at porn and they do and they they fight with their spouses and they do all these horrible things. The problem with Christianity is that Christian Christians when they go home after church is that they sin. And his solution was that we need Christians who really love the Lord who are willing to do what's right no matter what. Works righteousness. We got a sin problem, we're going to do it by getting people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and stop sinning. Well, good night. Okay. I'm sorry, but I sin in thought, word, and deed by the things I have done and by the things I have left undone. It is Christ who makes us pleasing to God. And here's the deal. What does Scripture say? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. You think of the, of the story of the woman who comes, you know, Jesus is at a Pharisee's house having dinner, and this woman of sin comes and she cries and wets the Lord's feet and mops it up with her hair and anoints him with her tears. And he says to the Pharisee, whose name was Simon, Simon, I'm going to ask you a question. There were two men who owed a debt. And the guy who they owed the debt to released them both. One of them owed a lot of money, and the other one owed a little bit of money. Which of the two do you think loved loved him more? And Simon the Pharisee says, well, it has to be the the one who had the greater debt canceled. And he said, you've you've said correctly. The one who had the greater debt canceled. When I came in, you didn't anoint my head with oil. You didn't wash my feet. And yet, since the time this woman came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet, wetting me with her tears. Her many sins are forgiven. You could tell because she loves much. And Jesus absolves that sinful woman and says, Daughter, your sins are forgiven. Giving me the law to make me love the Lord will only make me hate Him. And you know it's true. I can tell you this. What feeble love I have for the Lord, and it is feeble, is not based upon my law-keeping. It's based upon His forgiveness and grace of all the sins that He has forgiven me of. And believe me, I've got enough to send me to hell for three eternities or four. And so do you. Our love for the Lord is not based upon our good works. Our love for the Lord is based upon His mercy and His grace extended to us. And like that woman, we are sinful. And like that woman, we need to hear those words, your sins are forgiven. And I thank God for a church like this and a pastor and the pastors that we have who Sunday after Sunday proclaim Christ's righteousness and His love. Our God is not capricious. Evil things will happen to us. We will suffer. And all of us, if the Lord tarries, are going to die. Some of us graciously and quickly and others 
through long and torturous suffering. But that does not mean that our God has turned His back on us. Or that we're not righteous enough. Truly we aren't, but we are made pleasing because of Christ. And all of our feeble good works then are pleasing to God because God sees them in Christ, not because of how great we are. Now we've been, uh, we're in the book of Colossians, and we're in the opening verses. And by way of review, where we kind of started off on our path last week was looking at um, the first verses of it. I'm going to reread them, and then we're going to get back into really focusing in on the words, by the will of God. I'm using, you know, I really want to dig into this topic. The reason why is because this is a critical understanding as far as how we're saved, what our condition is as as humanity, and what it is that Christ is doing. Did we come to Christ because we chose to, or because we were elected before the foundations of the earth? And we're going to look at a biblical answer to these things and and really dive into it. So, uh, opening verses to the epistle to the Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word, in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed uh, in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. It also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, we were focusing in last week, and we're going to kind of refocus back on opening uh, verses. Here, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he's speaking apostolically. Um, and uh, Timothy, his, our brother, is also part of this epistle. But we're focusing in on the words, by the will of God highly loaded phrase here. And uh, he's an apostle by the will of God, but he's called, a, he's called to be a Christian by the will of God also. And last week we got into this a little bit, and I'm going to uh, do this by way of review, talking about the bondage of the will. What is our state, what is the state of all human beings before they become Christians? Okay. Here's what it says in the Augsburg Confession. Now, when I quote the Augsburg Confession, I am not putting the Augsburg Confession on the same level as Scripture. But I will say this, the Augsburg Confession correctly interprets Scripture. And that's what we believe about our confessions. It is taught among us that since the fall of Adam, all human beings who are born in the natural way are conceived and born in sin. This means that from birth they are full of evil lust and inclination and cannot by nature possess true fear of God and true faith in God. That, I cannot overemphasize this part right here. Cannot by nature possess true fear of God and true faith in God. And we're going to spend some time in the scriptures looking at this to see what scripture says about it. Moreover, this same innate disease and original sin is truly sin and condemns to God's eternal wrath all who are not in turn born anew through baptism in the Holy Spirit. So we talked about the key aspects of original sin. The first key aspect is hereditary guilt which is inherited from Adam. But it's not just that 
were guilty of his sin, but also hereditary corruption, that we are conceived and born sinners, and that we all die. Okay? The idea is, is that Adam and Eve became sinners by committing sin. All of their descendants, you and me, and our children and grandchildren, um, sin because they are by nature sinners. Snakes, slithers, cows, moo, sinners, sin. Okay? You kind of get the picture. And the key passages that we began to go over last week and didn't quite get through were Romans chapter 5, 15 through 19, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Psalm 51, 5, Romans 8 through 7. And I spent a little time this week in the bondage of the will and in our... Um, in our confessions, and I'll bring in some more passage, passages as they, uh, they bear on this issue. So if you remember, okay, talking about Adam's sin from Romans chapter 5, key passage here. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For judgment followed one trespass and brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Okay. Remember, when I first started teaching here, I did a uh, four-week lesson on basics of biblical hermeneutics. It all focuses in on grammar. Or as Bill Clinton would say, it all depends on what it is, is. All right? Pay attention to 19. For as the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. We were made sinners in Adam. Okay? So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's Christ. Okay? And we talk, last week I said I would look up a verse. This is the verse I wanted to find. And it's right here. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 21. For as by a man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We all die in Adam. In the garden, when Adam and Eve fell and were deceived by the serpent, all of us in him died. In Adam, we all die. This goes back to grammar. Okay, the question has to do with in, in Adam all die, in Christ you know, shall all be made alive. Is the all in these passages referring to everybody everywhere? Is everybody now in Christ and everybody going to be saved? Is that what this verse says? Everyone is condemned, definitely. Okay, Absolutely. Okay. Objectively, Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Okay. 
Now, we're different than the Calvinists. We don't believe in an unlimited atonement where the Calvinists believe that Christ didn't shed a single drop of blood for the non-elect. Okay? We actually believe that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Stephen? You can say no? You can, yeah, we can say no to it. And there's a good reason why we can say no to it, especially in this passage. This is one of those passages when you're translating it or you're interpreting it, you have to look at the context in which it is written. First question is, who was the epistle to the Corinthians written to? The Christian church in Corinth. Okay, the churches in Corinth. Okay, Paul here is speaking to Christians. Okay, and he is saying, all of us Christians died in Adam. But that, this all here does apply to the whole world because that's something we have in common. So also all of us in Christ shall be made alive. The connection here in the verse is, is that all of us die who are connected to Adam. All of us who are connected to Christ by faith live and will be resurrected. Okay? So even the passage itself, even though it's using the word all in both instances, the most important word there is not all. It's in. Okay? In the Greek, it's real simple. N. Okay? All of us in Adam die. All of us in Christ live. Well, actually, it's, it's still in the Greek. You have to maintain the context of who it's written to. Okay, for instance, one of the things that Luther says is, you know, how come, how come the Mosaic Law and all of its ceremonies and all the things regarding, you know, that we find in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, how come they don't apply to us? Okay, Luther's answer was real simple. We're not Jews. We weren't living at the time. Those laws were written for the Jewish community. Okay, so, you know, thank God I don't have to, you know, do a wave offering and all this kind of stuff. All right, it wasn't for me. Okay, that's, that's, that's the real answer. So when we're looking at Corinthians, when we see words that are like all, okay, even when we, you know, in, in the Greek, pantas, talking about all, it doesn't mean everybody everywhere at all times in all, in all things. You have to look at the context in which it's being used. So if I'm out speaking to the world, I could say, all of us are sinners, right? And I'd be right. Now I come here to Sunday school, and I could say, all of us will be resurrected at the last day and have been given Christ's righteousness as a gift. I'm using all still. But you know, in the context is now changed depending on who I'm addressing. Okay, same here with the, with the verse in Corinthians. Okay? Now, it is true that all of us in Adam die. How do we know that people are sinners? Death is a very objective thing. And it comes to all of us. Okay, it's one way we know it. So, let me continue on. I want to read, get you some more foundation to this. Ephesians chapter 2. This is one of Luther's generals. He, he calls Paul as one of his generals. All right. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's a great term. I, I recommend using that one with somebody who's unregenerate. Yeah, you're a son of disobedience. It might get their attention. Now, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. 
Real simple. What is 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 here? What are we by nature? Children of wrath. So when you see all those movies that are those feel-good movies that, you know, the, the hero or the heroine has this life struggle and things are just deteriorating and it's not until they realize they've got to look within and just go with their heart. That's where the truth is found. And then things become better. The conflict is resolved and live happily ever after. That's all of our stories. That's all of our movies, right? Scripture tells us a different story. The reason why you're suffering and you're miserable is because we are by nature children of wrath. You want to know why crime is on the rise? Because there's more people being born. Now, here's a section from the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. If you're familiar with the Augsburg Confession, it's presented in Augsburg, Diet of Augsburg. And then later the Catholics write a, a document called the Confutation, where they basically take the Augsburg Confession and they try to blow all these holes into it. And so Melanchthon, in his earlier days, writes a brilliant piece defending the, the Augsburg Confession. And here's what he writes regarding original sin. This passage testifies that we deny to those conceived and born according to the course of nature not only the act of fearing and trusting God. Now, this is important. We literally are saying and confessing that the Scriptures say that nobody, nobody who is not given faith by Christ has the ability to fear or trust God. Okay? But also the ability or gifts needed to produce such fear and trust. This is truly what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins. You are so dead, you can't even love God, you can't trust God, and this idea that now is the hour of decision, decide to love Jesus, just take the first step and God will go the rest of the way, is bad doctrine, is false doctrine, and false theology. For we say that those who have been born in this way have concupiscence. Friendly little Latin word that basically means that everything all the time in your orientation is bent in on yourself and you have nothing but this tendency towards doing evil. That's what we do by nature. So we are unable to produce true fear and trust in God. Well, that's a fine little theological statement, but do the Scriptures bear that out? The answer is yes, they do. Let me continue with this, though. Thus, when they, the Catholics, they speak about original sin, they fail to mention the more serious defects of the human nature, like being ignorant of God, despising God, lacking fear and confidence in God, hating the judgment of God, fleeing His judgment, being angry with God, despairing of His grace, and placing confidence in temporal things, etc. The scholastics do not even notice these maladies, which are completely opposed to the law of God. Go back to our catechisms. Okay, when we get to the Ten Commandments, there's two tables. One table this way. The other table this way. We seem to think that if we can have some nominal success in the table that affects our relationships with other people, that somehow... You know, it's time to stop and pat ourselves on the back because now we're being holy or we're, or we're growing in our sanctification. But it's the first table where we really need to be spending our time because when we look at that table, we all fall seriously short. And that list includes the things here that Melanchthon listed. 
Okay? Ignorant of God, despising God, lacking fear and confidence, hating His judgment, fleeing His wrath, being angry with God, despairing of His grace, placing confidence in temporal things, including your own sanctification. I call it the rat wheel. I used to be on it. It's not a lot of fun. Because you never know if you've done enough to please God. Indeed, they attribute to human nature the unimpaired powers to love God above all things and to keep the commandments of God according to the substance of the act. Nor do they see how they contradict themselves. For what else is the ability to love God above all things with one's own power and to keep the commandments of God other than original righteousness? If we can truly love God without God giving it to us, we don't have original sin, we have original righteousness. If you could truly choose God, you're not really fallen. You're just kind of stumbled and skinned up your knee. Now, let me give you a funny example that you can all relate to. I love Calvin and Hobbes. I introduced my kids to this comic a long time ago, and they've all been through every single one of these a bazillion times. Here's a good one, though. Here we got Calvin saying, Look, a firefly. Guess what Calvin's trying to do? He wants to light his butt up. Okay. Looks, can't quite do it. Okay. Hobbes says, uh, Your rear hasn't lit, if that's what you're wondering. And Calvin says, I can't even tell what muscle to flex. Okay. Saying that an unregenerate person who is sinful by nature, son of perdition, can somehow love God is the equivalent of saying that Calvin can light his butt up and be like a firefly. He just doesn't have the muscles to do it. It's that same thing. And let's see what the scriptures say. Sorry for using butt in church. I mean, that's a little crass. All right. For those of you who live according to the flesh, Romans chapter 8, starting verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It seems pretty basic, doesn't it? There it is. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile. It's that, you know, by nature, we're not only sinners, we're actively at war with God. It cannot, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Somebody who has not been given faith in Christ is incapable of loving God, incapable of choosing God, incapable of anything like that. Okay? In fact, Hebrews 11 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. That means that without faith, all of your good works amount to nothing. And God's going to remember your sins. The mind that is set in the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This goes back to my... Let's go back to this a second here. Pop quiz. What are the two... Greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God 
Love your neighbor as yourself, right? I mean, that's how Jesus answered, right? Okay, now notice, I said commandments. Let me go back a slide here. Okay. Too far. Here we go. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's what? Law. According to God's law, what are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. When we tell somebody, love God, are we preaching gospel or are we preaching law? Law. Okay? Think about that. That's where this whole thing hinges on. This is why in Luther's theology, this idea of the bondage of the will and not being saved by works are one and the same thing. The two are synonymous in his system. And it's not his system, it's Christ's system that we find in God's Word. Remember, whenever you tell somebody to love God, you're telling them the law. I remember when I was in junior high, I had a junior high, it was a junior high or early high school now, I'm getting old. It was, I was young, and I had a youth pastor. I think it was early high school. And my hormones had awoken, and I was struggling with my sin. Okay, And I was a Nazarene at the time. Now, being a Nazarene and being a sinner is not synonymous because Nazarene theology teaches that when you are truly born again, you are no longer a sinner. I'm not making this up. I have it in their manual. So, I'm thinking, I'm not even saved. So, I invite my youth pastor to go to a restaurant. And I wasn't a coffee drinker at the time, so I must have had a soda. And... We talked about these things. And I was really, really distraught and upset and looking for some comfort here because I was snatched by God's law. I knew I was snared. I knew I couldn't let myself out of it. I needed something that was going to give me some hope because I thought for sure I'm going to lose, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to make it, right? The rapture is going to happen. I'm going to get left behind, you know, things of this nature. And so I shared this with my youth pastor. And his advice basically boils down to this. Chris, don't fret so much. Just love God. Just love God and let the rest work itself out. Just love God? Well, my problem is I don't love Him. Because if I did, I wouldn't be doing these things. I wouldn't be having these thoughts. Don't tell me to just love God. What advice can you give me that's going to help me to do this? I need three simple steps. There are no three simple steps to loving God. Why? Because by nature, our flesh is hostile and at war with God. And it cannot submit to God's law. And God's law begins with, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then love your neighbor as yourself. I don't even like my neighbor. I don't even like her dog either. All right. So, we've been through this. The commandments, law, gospel. Okay, going back to Romans. We saw that flesh cannot submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So, according to the passage we just reviewed, can a person choose to love God? No. No. 
I don't care what they say at Calvary Chapel. I don't care what they say at the Baptist Church. And I don't care what Rick Warren says. God's Word says you cannot choose God. And you cannot, in your own ability, muster up the love or flex the muscle necessary to do this. It doesn't exist in you. In other words, Christ is the only one who saves you. Psalm 51.5. This was from last week too. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This sin that we suffer from goes all the way back to our conception. This verse is not saying that David's mom was a loose woman. It is saying something about David, that he was conceived in sin, sinful from the time he was conceived. Now, talking about decision theology, because that's kind of the opposite of free will. Uh, Ferdy, one of our theologians, has a great thing. He was talking about uh, free will. And he says that uh, we humans who are sinful by nature believe in free will because we have no choice. Those are nice plan words. I hope any, somebody gets it. But um, <laughs> the, it's this idea here, okay, that um, we want to believe that we have free choice in these matters. We don't. When it comes to the matters of Christ and God and salvation, we don't have these choices. This is what uh, John, this is some, uh, some other supporting passages, says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. The NIV, which is, a very, uh, which is one of the favorite translations of the evangelicals, actually says, um, nor of a human decision, which is actually a decent translation. Nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Talking about being born again in a way here. We're not born of a human decision, nor of our flesh or the will of a man, but we're born of God. God is the one who said yes, and the only thing we'll say all along the way is no, 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 no. Unless God turns your no into a yes, your answer will be no. John 6.44, great sermon. Jesus preaches about if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you have nothing to do with me. People gross out and go, ooh, that's sick and yicky. And Jesus then, you know, after this particular sermon, you know, a lot of people leave. You know, so apparently God wasn't blessing his ministry because Jesus' ministry experienced shrinkage. So um, in this chapter, John 6.44, this is what Jesus says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We're going to talk about that word draw here in a minute. It's the Greek word helkuo. Same chapter, verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Okay? A little bit of a Greek lesson here. Today's $5 Greek word is helkuo. Unless the Father draws him. The Greek word for draw is helkuo. Here's what it says, what it means. To move an object from one area to another in a pulling motion or to draw. It, has, it carries with it the impl implication that the object being moved 
is incapable of propelling itself. Or in the case of persons, is unwilling to do so voluntarily. In either case, the implication of exertion is on the part of the mover. All of that is in that little word. Helkuo. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Let me give you an example. If you were to create a nice big statue of the emperor of Rome, and you wanted to move it from your shop out into the middle of the piazza so the whole world can see what a great statue that you've created, you would throw ropes around that statue and helkuo it. That statue will not walk into the middle of the piazza by itself. And it will not do so willingly. That's what Jesus is saying. No one can come to me unless the Father helkuos him, draws him. And that means you wouldn't do it yourself. And you can't. Now, our confessions of faith also include negative confessions. I'm not talking about the stuff that you hear, like, you know, Kenneth Copeland say, you know, if you negative confess, you've cursed yourself and you've messed up your life. But we, we also talk about the things we do not believe. In the Augsburg Confession, then, the opposite of what we believe on original sin, we read these words. Rejected, then, are the Pelagians and others who do not regard original sin as sin in order to make human nature righteous through natural powers, thus insulting the suffering and merit of Christ. Okay, Pelagians. What is a Pelagian? Well, here's a common definition of a Pelagian. And notice that I, my, the artwork I picked for this slide was Moses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pelagians need to listen up. Pelagius, by the way, was a monk who lived in Rome at the same time of Augustine. Okay, we don't really know much about his pedigree. We don't know exactly where he came from. But we know that it was the Lord who used the great saint Augustine to combat the Pelagian heresy. This guy denied original sin and, and believed that people had the power in and of themselves to choose God and do right. Okay? So Pelagianism, it is the belief that original sin did not taint human nature, which being created from God was divine, and that, mortal, that the mortal will is still capable of choosing good or evil without divine aid. Okay? Thus, Adam's sin was to set a bad example for his progeny. Bad example. See, that whole thing in the whole garden, the whole purpose of that was not to tell you why you are a sinner. It was Adam was setting a bad example for humanity. In fact, true Pelagians would believe that you can take an infant child from the second that they are born, whisk them away to a magical island where they be cared for by angels, and that kid could actually grow up and never sin. Okay. Thus, Adam's sin was set a bad example, but his actions did not have the other consequences imputed to original sin. Pelagianism views the role of Jesus as setting a good example, thus counteracting Adam's bad example. In short, humanity has full control and thus full responsibility for his own salvation, in addition to full responsibility for every sin. Um, and according to Pelagian doctrine, since humanity is no longer in need of any of God's graces beyond the creation of Will Jesus' sacrifice is devoid of its redemptive quality. By the way, there's a very similar heresy that's running around the landscape. If you're familiar with the emergent church, 
Brian McLaren, who is like the elder statesman of the emergent church, has a brand new book com- coming out. And the name of the book is Everything Must Change. And he's done us a favor in this book because he's actually defined the emergent gospel, which up until now has been undefinable. And according to Brian McLaren, the reason why Jesus died on the cross was to show the world how cruel our imperial system was. I'm not making that up. Okay? Show us how cruel our imperial Roman way of thinking is. Yeah, it should be. What's scary is, is that he's feeling bold enough now to actually have himself be defined that way. Now, semi-Pelagianism. This is what plagues American evangelicalism. Okay? This is the thing that you meet at work with your evangelical friends. Semi-Pelagianism is a form of Pelagianism. It is a teaching that man has the capacity to seek God in and of himself apart from any movement of God in the Holy Spirit. According to semi-Pelagianism, man doesn't have such an unrestrained capacity, but man and God could cooperate to a certain degree in the salvation effort. Man can, unaided by grace, make the first move toward God, and then God completes the salvation process. Okay? Got a great quote from Rick Warren in The Purpose Driven Life, where he says, God just wants you to make the first step, and He'll come the rest of the way. The thing with semi-Pelagianism is is that they still believe you can do something. Just make a step. Make a decision. Receive Christ. Say the prayer. Here's the deal. We have to stick to our guns, and our guns are Scripture. Okay? We know that it clearly teaches it, and we know that the people who are involved in decision theology and, and our evangelical friends believe that they came to Christ because they made a decision. All right? We have the biblical obligation in love, to share with them the truth. And the point of all of this is is that when you take away that first step and then Christ does all the rest, because ultimately, if you think about it, if you can make even one step, you're still the one in charge. God is at your beck and call. It's like I can whistle for bees. You know, can't whistle here. You know, and here come my bees. You know, my bees come to my rescue. Those bees are now my bees. If I can make a step, you know, if all I've got to do is the one thing and God's going to come the rest, God's my genie, God's my servant. Not only that, is, is that I've been on this rat wheel before. If you can make one step, then you've got to keep making that same step over and over and over and over again. And then you never know if you're really actually saved because you never know if you've ever done enough or if you've actually truly made that first step in the first place because your sin keeps getting in the way. And in those churches, you don't hear about the forgiveness of sins. You hear about all these little life applications that you need to do to be a Christ follower. You want to be a Christ follower, you need to have a perfect marriage. And in order to have a perfect marriage, you need to follow these biblical principles. You want to be a Christ follower, you want to have good finances. And you need to follow these financial business models for your life. This is where the rubber hits the road. They'll throw up an argument and say, well, I have to be able to choose God because if I can't choose God, then, then I'm just a robot. Okay? And you basically kindly say, okay, I appreciate your point of view. But let's look at what Scripture says. Walk through these passages with me. Is Scripture giving us the ability to choose God? Or is it saying something completely different? 
you got to come back to. This is really where Sola Scriptura hits the road. This is where it's fought. This is really where the battle is waged. And it's, funny enough, it's always about the bondage of the will. It always is about that. Luther was at, you know, basically made a statement that, you know, if he could burn all of his books, he would, with the exception of the bondage of the will and the catechisms. Just get rid of everything. Okay? Why? Because this is where the battle is being waged. So here's the deal. Scripture is not giving us the robot analogy. It's basically saying that we're sons of the devil. Okay? That's the problem. Our problem isn't that we're robots. It's the problem is that we're sons of the devil. And we're doing by nature the things that the devil does because we're his children. Okay? And that's a really ugly, nasty picture. And that's the one that has to be painted. And it's not popular. It's not going to win friends and influence people. And it's not going to be the one that's going to grow mega churches either, by the way. Not in America, because we believe in rugged individualism. I'm the Marlboro man. You know, I'm a cowboy and I do everything myself. We're all familiar with this passage. Great passage. Again, pay real close attention to the grammar. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. And this is not of your own doing. What is not of your own doing? Faith and grace. It's both. In the Greek, it's, 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 it actually refers back to both faith and grace. The whole salvation. You are saved by grace through faith. And it is not your own doing. If you could choose God then it is your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If I am the one who made the decision for God, and God came and did the rest, I'm the one who made the decision, I'm the one who did the work, I'm the one who gets the credit. Me, 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 I, 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 I'm still in my sins. For we are His workmanship. Whose? God's. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Let me give you another passage. One that you can easily overlook. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Who's doing all the work there? Christ, not you. You don't come to the Father on your own. You come to the Father through Christ. And it's not just talking about the fact that He is alone in salvation. He is also the means by which you are saved. He chooses you. He turns your no into a yes. Okay? This is another fun passage. Luther does some good work with this one. And so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And the truth will set you free. Wait a second. Now, notice something about slaves and people who are imprisoned. Can they let themselves out? No. Okay? Unless they're super clever and they have this really neat show on Fox called Jailbreak. Anyway, okay, you have to be set free. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say that you will, you will set us free? 
Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, and the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Who's doing the setting free here? Over and over and over again, passages show that it is Christ doing this work, not us. He's the one who sets us free. And so all of this now makes sense. It's not of your own doing. Not a result of works. We are His workmanship. It is the gift of God. Okay? Now, all of this comes full circle then, back to Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. We just went on a big, long bunny trail about the will of God. And Timothy, our brother. Okay? Which leads to an important question. Will the slide advance? Okay? When did the Apostle Paul make a decision for Christ? Did he? He didn't, did he? I can't find anywhere in Scripture where Paul says, Lord, I accept you into my heart. (laughs) In fact, let's look at the record. Okay, and then we'll finish off here. But Paul, this is from Acts chapter 9, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Is Paul here hostile to God? This is the perfect picture of hostility. Okay, This is our sinful nature at work. Doing evil, thinking that you're doing it for God. That's how twisted this is. So if any belonging to the way, men or women might, be, uh, might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but not seeing, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was out without sight and neither ate nor drank. And there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. He might have been on Saul's short list. People to go visit. And if you uh, know anything about ancient Damascus, you know, it's basically, it's, it's, a, it's a, right on a Roman road heading north, and it's perfectly straight street that runs right through the center of town, and everything's on a grid pattern in there. And so the main, main thoroughfare is on Straight Street. All right? The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who come and who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine 
doesn't say go because he's made a decision to follow me. It says go because I've chosen him to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show. Let's see. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose, and he was baptized. Picking up from actually, I'm going to pick this up from Acts chapter 22 because there's a piece I want to pick up on. Picking up on the same story retold in Acts chapter 22, it says this: And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, he said to me, "Brother Saul, receive your sight." And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw. And then he said, "The God of our fathers appointed you to know His will." Who chose who? God chose Paul. And I got news for you. His conversion is every one of our conversion stories. Whether it happens in a blinding light or it happens here. We're all knocked off of our high horse and chosen by God and given faith as a gift and redeemed and washed in His blood against our will. For you will be a witness for him. And I like, love these words. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Don't tell me baptism doesn't do nothing. It says here it washes away sins. And I'm just stupid enough to believe it. Mm-hmm.